Hello, hello, Mitch Michaels here. It's time for another edition of the Money Mitch Effect. Last day of January, glad you're with me. Got a great show planned for you today. I'm going to start out with Rachel Stolman. Another interview with her. Spoke to her last summer in St. Louis. We did this one via Skype. Rachel is a brilliant tennis mind, a tennis professional. We're going to talk about a lot of different things on a detailed interview. Break down the 2018 Australian Open. Caroline Wozniacki and Roger Federer are champs. We talk about the good and bad storylines of that tournament. What's next with Serena Williams? And then we get to know her a little bit more as well. It's great to talk to Rachel. She obviously knows her stuff. It's a great interview you're not going to want to miss on the Money Mitch Effect. And then after that, Eric Roberts comes back on the show to talk about the NHL. Just had their All-Star game this past weekend, All-Star weekend in Tampa Bay. We break down the storylines there. What's going on? Are the Vegas Golden Knights going to be beaten? Who's going to make a push in the Eastern Conference? And how will the Dominoes fall? And we also pay our respects to Yarmir Yager, a hockey legend and OG. It's Rachel Stillman first, then Eric Roberts. On the Money Mitch Effect, let's start the show. All right, now joining us on the Money Mitch Effect, friend of the show and officially a reoccurring guest, tennis professional, trainer as well, Rachel Stillman. Rachel, thanks for joining. Thanks for being gracious with your time. And yeah, it's official now. You're a reoccurring guest and you can't really get out of that. I know. No, I'm happy to be back on the show. Um, had a good time last time and I'm excited to talk some tennis with you again. So. Yeah, the two things I know about you are that you always rep St. Louis and that you love tennis. And that's yeah. pretty much the important points, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's kind of it. That's kind of all, all you need to know. So, okay. yeah. right. Well, since our last chat in uh, the summer of last year, a lot's happened. You've been uh, you know, doing some big things that we're going to get into, including writing some blogs. You got to go to the U.S. Open, which I still you know, haven't been stationed in California and I'm extremely jealous of. But you've been paying close attention to the tennis season and what's happened. So I'll start with just going up into this Australian Open. Are you Have you been surprised with what's been happening in the tennis world with the men's game being still dominated by Federer and Nadal and the women's game seeing so many different faces reach their first championship, their first level of sustained success? Yeah, and you know what I think is interesting is that this Australian Open was kind of the first tournament in a while that's been actually a lot more unpredictable on the men's side uh, than the female's side. And uh, I think that was what was kind of interesting. We saw Federer, I called Federer to win the tournament, and he ended up winning. We saw him win, and then we saw, what, four of the big five kind of just out early, um, which is pretty unexpected. And then as the women kind of went on, it was a little bit more predictable, Halep and uh Wozniacki obviously making it to the final so that was a that was kind of a different dynamic for a tennis tournament grand slam event so it certainly was the the Federer winning being the most predictable side of it but everything that led up to that was very unpredictable you had two first time semi-finalists and before we dive into that I want to get your take on something specifically as a a former player someone who played it at a high level is there anything like this sport in particular where you start basically you have a short off season but right out of the gate you're playing for high stakes in unbelievably hot temperature like you not only have to be ready to compete for a grand slam but to battle the elements I just don't I was trying to think about it I just can't think of anything like it in sports today yeah yeah I I actually can't say that like 
there's one that just kind of like right out of the gate as far as the sport where you would be as thrown into something that's like very very extremist especially with the US or the Australian Open what I think they do a good job of is they have a couple uh, you know warm-up tournaments in Australia like Brisbane and and get the players kind of accumulated to the weather and, and the heat but no it's it's extreme and uh, it's actually like dangerous uh, conditions that these athletes like you saw uh, Halep after her match with Lauren Davis she had to go to the hospital and get like a um, IV and you saw Gail Monfils like struggling on court um, and saying like that it was actually hard to breathe in these conditions it's actually pretty difficult for even the most um, elite of athletes to kind of handle out there playing hour after hour in that heat. So, no, I can't say it's another sport out there that kind of deals with elements like that. I I agree completely, and I think part of that is also uh, having to get yourself ready. You have a short window from when the season is over that you have to rest up but also start training for just having that stamina and having that ability to get through it. It's it's certainly remarkable, and and I want to start with the women's side because – we saw some great tennis, very high-level tennis. Caroline Wozniacki winning her first major ever. It took her, Rachel, 43 tries, 43 Grand yeah. Slam tries, the most it's ever taken anyone to I'll get there first. Yeah. But she did it, and, and her style is not is not the flashiest in terms of power, but she did it by just outlasting the elements, being in phenomenal shape, and in that final match, running down everything Halep had for her, I was happy for Wozniacki because I was one of the doubters that wasn't sure that she'd ever get to a slam, get back to number one, and now here she is with both. Yeah, no, I I agree with you, and and it just shows persistence. Like, uh, when I saw that she, um, I didn't realize it had, she had been on tour for that long, like playing 12 years of Grand Slams, 43 Grand Slam events, and never won one, but she's had a number one ranking for a while. It reminded me a little bit of Wild Rinka and how he never kind of, like, gave up. Like, he had been there so many times, like, in the finals and all that, how he has this tattoo saying, like, ever tried, ever failed, like, you can't give up or whatever. And uh, that's kind of like Wozniacki. She never gave up. She uh, stuck to it and trusted the process. And, you know, 12 years later, now here she is with a Grand Slam, and I think it's the first of – probably quite a few coming up she has experience now she knows what it's like to actually win a grand slam she's kind of over that like bridesmaid position where like she's in second place and so now I think yeah I think we'll be seeing a lot more like grand slam finals and and wins for her moving forward so yeah I wonder is that the David Lee effect is that (laughs) (laughs) it's that St. Louis David Lee effect I tell you no yeah that's that's super exciting that and uh yeah so well, one thing that I, I, I want to give her all the credit in the world and not come off as, as condescending when I say this, she did have some good breaks in the sense that the draw did open up for her. It, it takes that we see, and, and you know as a tennis player, styles make fights, and she didn't run into that bulldozer that could just hit her off the court as has happened in the past, but she did outlast Halep, who, you know, it, it's unfortunate because Halep, you know, the unofficial statement is that she takes the title from Wozniacki right now as the best women's player probably ever to not win a Grand Slam. Right, right. So I, yeah. and, I, and I hope she does it, but we've seen her not get through and not put away matches. And it happened, almost happened against Davis and then Kerber the round before. Yeah. But I'm starting to wonder, because the game's there, Rachel, I'm just starting to wonder if it's the mental thing with Simona Halep. Hey. And she's one one thing about her is that she's just a super super feisty player. Like uh, she had a few what match points down and earlier on in the tournament that that uh, match with Lauren Davis. She had two very very difficult matches right before she got to Wozniacki. And uh, I believe that Wozniacki had a 
it's hard, it's hard to compare like draws or whatever, but I think that Halep had a little bit of a tougher road to get to the finals. She played, I believe it was like three hours more of tennis um, leading up to the finals match than Wozniacki did. So she was, uh, I can see it like maybe a little bit more fatigued. Um, I, when I think of Halep, I think of her as like a very mentally tough player. So I think I'm I'm pretty sure like that she will probably win a Grand Slam sometime in the future. Let's say uh, for her sake, hopefully Serena's not in the tournament because uh, I can see that being a bit big, um, you know, struggle, struggle for her to get past Serena in the tournament. But uh, no, I think I think she's got a bright career and she just needs to get over it. Just win one, just like Wozniacki did, you know. Yeah, she's still relatively young. I think 25 or so, 26. I, I thought she was really mentally tough. Until that French Open final against Ostapenko when she was up a set in three love, and I'm still I'm still hopeful, but I just yeah. I want to see her put it together. That match she had against Kerber was phenomenal, like some, right. some of the best tennis. It's good yeah. to see Angelique Kerber back. She had a pretty pretty terrible 2017 by her standards, and she beat Sharapova down in that match, uh, third round I think, and yeah. beating you know making a run to the semifinals. Uh, destroying Madison Keys as well, losing to Halep in a great match. It's good to see her back. I think it's good. I think she's got the game that could win multiple slams still. Right, right, yeah. I think she does too, and I think that was a really good match as well, the Halep-Kerber match. Like They were just going at it. Every single shot was crazy, especially towards the end, just grinding through, and, and that's some super solid tennis. And, you know, on the men's side, like uh, there were some – pretty good matches but I gotta say like this tournament I think that the women's was just a little bit more exciting than the men's which is you don't say that too often you know well it's the gift it's the gift and the curse of Serena Williams right because we all like watching her play but it really does open up when she's not out there and I hate it I feel bad saying it but I kind of feel more excited when she's not out there now because it's anybody's tournament Uh, but but there were some negative sides still chatting with Rachel Stillman on the Money Mitch effect of uh, the women's side of the tournament. Some negatives, and number one being, I hate to say it, and I'm sure you hate to hear it, but American women's tennis did not have a good showing uh. at this tournament. With all due respect to Lauren Davis putting on a show in that match against Halep, it was a lot of one-and-dones. Sloane Stevens out early, Coco right. out early, Keys making a run but, but having a terrible ending, Venus out early. Was there any rhyme or reason? I mean, we just came off of a semifinal uh, in the U.S. Open, a Grand Slam, where all four were Americans. So why, why, if any reason, was there a drop-off here for American women's tennis? You know, I couldn't tell you, and you're right. Like, it was um, three of the four semifinalists of the U.S. Open lost first round at the Australian Open. And, uh, you know, one thing that I did like seeing was uh, Sloan, like uh, the reporters and everyone was kind of pressing her, like, what happened? Like, you won first in the uh, Aust- or the U.S. Open. Why'd you lose first round at the Australian? And she was just like, you know what, calm down. Like, it's okay. Like, I'll get it back. You know, it happens. And she was yeah. just real calm about it. And, uh, and you know, she could have she could have been real thrown off about it. Um, well, but I think that's... do you think Rachel? Sorry to cut you off, but do you think that was also her? I remember that soundbite, and it was good to see her, yeah. see her, you know, be fine with it. But do you think that was also maybe a little bit of her convincing herself like everything's going to be okay? Because I'm I'm a big Sloane Stevens fan, but yeah. she still hasn't won a match since that U.S. Open final. Oh yeah. You know what? I'm not sure. Maybe maybe it could have. Maybe it could have been her just kind of reassuring her fans, like, listen, I'm still around. Uh, I'm still doing fine. But uh, I bought it. I liked what she had to say. Okay. Uh, That's what so, and I, yeah, and I, uh, she's a she's a great talented player. I believe that she'll um yeah she'll be able to come back from it. 
Coco's one was weirder for me because yeah. she was a semifinalist a year ago and was right there with Venus into the third set. And I just I'm a fan of her game because the power and the feistiness is something I think you need to win at a very high level. But she, it was bizarre. She was complaining about not having the bananas on the on the court. She was getting into it. She's somebody that I think if she gets thrown off of her game, it's just a nightmare. And we've unfortunately seen it time and time again. Yeah. You know, and that's a uh, level of like maturity as far as uh, being on court. And, and you see that in a couple other players, like uh, even on the men's side. You know, I got to give it props to Kyrgios because usually you kind of see him act like that. But he actually seemed uh, like he really was had matured as a player this tournament. And uh, what I kind of liked is that his maturity is catching up to his talent level. So I think that he's um, doing really well in that sense. I'm going off topic here, but I always think about kind of like his dynamic with a coach, how he doesn't have a coach right now. And what he's kind of thinking there, like, am I, is he going to get a coach at some point? Is Who wants to come forward to coach him? Like, I think that any kind of pro that would want to coach him would want to do it when he's, like, 25 or 26. He has those years under his belt and things like that. But, yeah, that was super off topic. But, um, you know, just going with the fact of, like, players getting kind of thrown <laughs> off. And you saw Halep kind of uh, slip up a little bit. Like, it's hot out there. It's super hot conditions. These players are kind of going through it and, and fighting. And the courts, they're fast, hard courts, a little bit slower, I think, than the U.S. Open. So the points are a little bit longer. I remember um, reading something about that. So the points are a little bit longer. It's just long matches. And, and uh, at some point, like tempers and a uh, little bit like impatient, things like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this is a tennis podcast. You're not going off topic. Okay. <laughs> so you don't have anything to worry about there. Uh, yeah. No, but, I, you know, in for every American that didn't break through on the women's side, we, we yeah. saw some younger players break through um, that weren't American. Your girl, Naomi Osaka, having a nice run. You know, she, she ran into Halep, who, who played a great match. Um, there there were some good players. And, and you know, I, I do want to see that top tier breakthrough because Pliskova and Spinolina were two girls I had my eye on. And... Spitalina still has not won a quarterfinal match. She's reached there, I think, three or four times, has not won. Pliskova has the best serve in all of women's tennis. I mean, Serena may be up there, but she's got the aces record. She can't get past that quarterfinal round, so or semifinal round in this case. It's it's frustrating. Yeah, no, that's, that's pretty interesting. I think you're right about that, just kind of like that higher tier and who uh, who could possibly – you know, come and feel that consistently. You have a couple of players in the that make the quarterfinals consistently, Grand Slam after Grand Slam. But when can they push through and and make win the next one or two matches and get to that you know final couple of rounds? Well, as bad as uh, Sloane Stevens's losing streak is, before we go to the men's game, I want to share the stat about a losing streak that's even more ridiculous, and that's Kiki Meldenovic. Rachel, she hasn't won a match since July 31st of 2017, and she's still in the top 13. No kidding. Yeah, it's uh, it kind of shows you though, right? What the ranking system—it's it's hard yeah. for all those points to move off. She she wins a couple clay court tournaments and uh, makes a run to the quarterfinals of the French, and yeah, does not win a match. It's it's ridiculous, but that is wild. <laughs> that's a wild stat. It is. Hey, I'm full with them. You know that. I but know. Gonna... <laughs> that's one I did not know. So <laughs> we're gonna go to the men's side of the Australian Open, the 2018 Australian Open, with Rachel Stuhlman, okay. tennis professional, here on the Money Mitch Effect. Roger Federer. We got to start there because he's now won 20 Grand Slams, defeating Marin Cilic in five interesting sets to do that. 
20 grand slams, Rachel is <laughs> it's five years. I mean, that's, that's mm-hmm. insane. I know, I know there've been women, Serena Williams, Martina Navratilova and, uh, or Steffi Graf, excuse me, and Margaret Court that have reached that club, but for Federer to do it after a lot of people have left him for dead five, six years ago, it's just right. truly incredible. It's another, it's another accomplishment in the greatest male tennis resume of all time. I know, I know. And, uh, you know what, like, I think that that kind of has to do with like this day and age, you see athletes and how uh, they're improving and with age. And uh, I think that's due to a lot of things such as technology. Um, you've got like, let's see, like uh, knee surgeries that used to take nine months to uh, recover from, take nine weeks. You see like LeBron James, he's not going to play 82 games in a season. And it's kind of how they're strategically structuring their schedules. I think, uh, remember Roger last year, how he opted out of the French Open to, you know, train for Wimbledon. I think that's also a good strategy. And, uh, but it's just like, he's healthy and he's fit. I mean, think about it. We got, we've got the, a 40 year old that's about to go for the Super Bowl on Sunday. (laughs) Like these athletes, they're prepared and and they're healthy and ready to kind of you know go at the highest level still and and so Feder, I think he's still got a lot in him and out that's of the, the that's the crazy top, thing, I know and out of the top five, like he's the most healthy. So yeah, that backhand has just gotten so much better. And yeah. I heard somebody saying at work uh, last week, I think it was during the Burditch match. Uh, in the quarterfinals, like if he would have <laughs> switched to it, you know, five or ten years ago, if he would have hit his back and like that, he might not have lost the match. I yeah, mean, it's just it's insane. And the thing about it is, and you you touched on it, it's taking control of your schedule. Federer yeah. goes on the rehab for you know he shuts it down after Wimbledon two years ago when he probably could have made a pushback for the U.S. Open, but he wanted to play it safe. He comes back, he wins the Aussie Open, but he's not thinking about rankings at that time. He pretty much sits out until Indian Wells, Miami, and then doesn't play again until the Wimbledon tune-up. I think we're going to start to see a lot more of that, especially with the Nadals and Djokovic's, because Federer has, and wow. I think you would agree, a blueprint for how to maintain a high level of play later. Hey. You might not have to push yourself to play every single tournament anymore. Hey, I agree with that. Like Serena Williams, we not, might not see her play 18 events this year. And the thing is, is these athletes are now finding like out that you know we might drop a couple ranking points we might miss out on some tournament money at this this or that tournament to save ourselves and our health for the bigger tournaments and get ready for the ones and I I think that's something that we'll continue to see and that that'll just kind of lead for the uncertainty of like that ranking system that we have and like a little bit of confusion there as far as when when big players sit out at this tournament or that tournament and uh and so I think we'll keep seeing like players with time strategically structure their schedules so that um they can best stay healthy and you know compete at their highest level that they can the final was interesting because it looked like he was going to roll Chilich another nice run by Chilich to get to a grand slam final now with one championship and two finals but he wins the first set early Chilich wins second in a tie break fed rolls in the third up a break in the fourth and then Chilich <laughs> storms back I guess I can't remember a fifth set changing so drastically like Chilich up 1-0 with uh, or should not up 1-0 in the first game having break points and then all of a sudden Fed saves him and then wins 6-1. It was it was stunning. Yeah, you know, I caught probably half of that match, but I think that Chilich he looked great. I think Chilich looks really good. He uh, made a, a few big changes on his serve, lower the ball toss. 
But uh, no, I think that Federer kind of dominated the whole time. And even like when he lost the second set, I was just like, whatever, he'll win the next two. And maybe and if he needs to, he'll win the fifth. But it's true. It, it's right. Because it's like even I felt the same way. Like, I just yeah. don't think he's going to lose until, you know, Chilich is serving for it. Maybe I'm just right. spoiled in my Federer fandom there. But another championship, no signs of slowing down for the great Roger right. Federer. But the, yeah. other, the other side of this men's draw in addition to some exciting tennis, was injury at the top. You mentioned the other big five. Murray didn't play. He's going to be out till at least Wimbledon, not looking good for him there. Uh, Stan, very beat up, loses early in the tournament. Djokovic loses to Chung in a great match, but he was showing signs of injury. And then Nadal, who in the quarterfinals against Chilich, just got struck by the injury bug like nothing we've ever seen before. It was, in a way, kind of sad. You're happy for the young guys, Rachel, right? But you don't want to see the old guard go out like that i know yes you certainly don't want to see any of them be injured like that like if you are going to see a new wave of younger players you want to see them kind of earn it rather than these um these great players um have to kind of forfeit it due to in- injury um i think that this tournament had a couple great little stories like chung what a story he oh, has like, young chung was that no, I, you so, can't be a fan let me ask you this because the Djokovic match against Chung might have been my favorite men's match of the whole tournament. Yeah. And we've seen Djokovic lose more often in recent years. But it's mostly, pretty much exclusively, by guys that have their distinct style. The way Federer plays Nadal with his power stand with, you know, hitting him off the court at time. And even Murray, who is just relentless. But have you ever seen Djokovic lose at his own game? Because that's what I felt like we watched hey. with Chung. Yeah, yeah. They, you know what? And I remember the commentator saying how they had a real similar kind of game. And, and you know, uh, Chung outplayed him. Like, he gave him a taste of his uh, own medicine. And that was, yeah, that was kind of cool. Uh, I just like how he just had, like, an innocence to him when he played. Like, uh, nothing to lose kind of a thing. Like, they were talking about his story, how, like, he won some tournaments so he didn't have to go to the Army and, and all that kind of stuff. So it was wow. kind of, some kind of serious. He just uh, played – like he had nothing to lose. That was really cool. I think another great story, good and bad story, tennis, Sandred, mm-hmm. who uh fellow SEC tennis player, which is pretty cool. But he, I mean, he had a great tournament, a great breakthrough, and it was good to kind of finally see him have his breakthrough tournament. And then obviously he got in a little bit of trouble at the end of the tournament or whatever, which is a whole different topic of discussion. But um, no, I mean, it, it was a good tournament for um, just uh, – few people you don't really hear talk about even Kyle Edmund and, and yeah. uh, so. <laughs> Kyle getting to a semi-final uh, a phenomenal yeah. run for him and Chung I just want to touch on Chung because he was a yeah. showman out there too he was pumping the crowd up he had a lot of flair yeah. to his game and I was you know it was cool hearing his story and also hearing him say that Novak Djokovic was his idol and he just mimicked his game after him those I stories know. they kind he of get like to me a little bit like. yeah yeah it's uh it's always it's always fun to see those stories um, for every, you know, Edmund and Sangren story, there were, you know, the, the other top players that we thought or top-ish players that we thought could break through. A lot of the Americans lost early. Sock, Isner, and Johnson all go out, but Sangren makes that run. Uh, it just shows that you never really know. You, you never really know in these tournaments. And I, I do have to say, though, I, Zverev, we, we have to have that conversation. Because I was having that conversation with people before the tournament, and I was like, if he doesn't go far in a slam again, we have to talk about how he underperforms. I yeah. Think it's time. I think it's time to have it. He still hasn't beaten anybody in a slam in the top 50. 
And yeah. we're supposed to believe this guy's got it, and he hasn't even made a, uh, a quarterfinal yet. Wow. Uh, I didn't know that said he hasn't beat a top 50 player. I really, really like him. Like, I, I think he's a great player. He's still real young, and he's maturing on court. Yeah, no, I think he's still got a lot ahead of him, a lot of good ahead of him. I think that he will be successful in Grand Slams coming up, maybe in the next couple of years. Hope so. You know, and Chung isn't a bad hey. loss because he went on to beat Djokovic right. immediately after, but just how he lost, fading away, completely getting bageled in the fifth set. I mean, I'd just like to see a little more fight. And, you know, we actually watched that match today at work again. And um, he, Varev gets in his own head. Like, he's arguing about, like, the lights not being on early enough and yeah. an issue with the camera. And, and I get it, and I get that there's frustrations out there. But something I'm sure you've dealt with and you've heard before, like, you're not the only one out there. Like, Chung's oh, yeah. got to deal with the same conditions, and he's he's beating you down senseless. So so I look right. at it, at least. No, I think you're right. I think you're right about that one. So Dimitrov is a guy in team, two guys that also, it's not just exclusive as Vera. Those two, gosh, I, I, I want to see more. Grigor specifically, his game is so pretty to watch, and he loses to Edmund in, in four sets, and he just looks so bad. I, You know, it's frustrating because of all the guys, I would put the most confidence in him being able to break through the big four, big five, but... Yeah. Another mental head case, I feel like, because yeah. when he's on, the Kyrgios match was phenomenal to beat him, but, yeah, just didn't have it. No, I agree with you. Um, he's kind of one of those players as well that makes it uh, real far in the tournament quarterfinals consistently and just doesn't kind of break through that the next, you know, matches of the tournament. I think you're right when it comes to who's going to be, like, consistently the top five players. I think he, t uh, talent-wise, could do it, but maybe it is a mental thing. Who knows? He he's older though. He's been on tour for a little while now. Like he, I think I think he should by now. You know, he definitely should. Uh, Rachel Stoneman, Money Mitch effect still going strong here. Hopefully, you're not too winded. <laughs> got a couple more things to talk about. I'm uh, sorry. Tennis Sangren got me thinking, and and I thought you'd be the best person to ask about this. He's a college tennis player, like yourself, former SEC tennis player, Tennessee Volunteers. Uh, he makes the quarterfinals of this major, but still, there hasn't been a male player from a, a male college tennis player to win a major since John McEnroe did. And yeah. in the women's side, it's even longer than that. So my question to you is: Are we going to see a breakthrough at all? Can a yeah. women's or male college tennis player win a major? No, you know what's real cool is that uh, at the or at the U.S. Open last summer, Kevin Anderson finals, uh, mm -hmm. University of Illinois. I believe it was some stat like 14 guys in the men's draw had played college tennis. Yeah. Like it was something outrageous. And that was something that is definitely unusual as far as, you know, college tennis players competing at Grand Slam events. I don't really know what the stats are on the women's side as much. I know there are a few on tour, Irina Falcone, Georgia Tech, um, and a few other women who, who had played that are um, – in the grand slams but no i think that i think that now like players are choosing to go to college i remember we talked about this a little last time too players are kind of choosing to go to college because it's a free kind of way for them to um you know get their equipment get their coaching get their experience playing other real high level tennis um before they make that next move tennis is a very expensive sport when um you're trying to make it on tour so i think that this is a way for the good players that they're starting to kind of go with the trend and, and play college tennis and then uh, make it to those Grand Slam events. So, yeah, I remember last at the U.S. Open. 
So. Yeah, I, I don't know if the women are necessarily buying in as much for whatever reason. I don't have any data to back it up, but it does seem like there's more of a male presence in, in that path. It's also, as we mentioned before, you know, you're you're playing longer into your into your 30s now on average than in the past. Yeah. So the, the professional window is expanding in that regard. Uh, I just I was curious by that because Anderson was you know one match away he had Nadal and he couldn't beat him but um, I, I want to see it I, I want to see somebody break through and I think that'd be exciting for for yeah. college tennis fans and former players like yourself and and everybody to just say we finally broke the curse. Yeah, I do too. I think that and what a great thing that would be for kind of like the NCAA and and uh, all you know college athletics that you that tennis players can perform on the highest level and actually and actually win some so yeah i think that'd be really cool and i think it will happen like we had kevin last time john isner is always always up there and uh we've got these kind of standout players like sandrin and kudla and just these guys that are are starting to compete at a higher level after college tennis you get your degree you can kind of do whatever you want like there's no rush to get on tour now especially as we see like fetter who's 36 arena who's 35 like it's no rush. You've got you get out of college. You've got ten years to you know, and you can win a grand slam or two if you want. <laughs> yeah, and I and I forgot to mention. I want to get his name in there as well. But uh, McDonald, the guy that pushed Dimitrov late in the in like the second round. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, he's yeah. A college tennis player as well. So Where did um, he play? I think it was on the West Coast. I want to say it was like Stanford, but. Um, yeah, he, he was, you know, he's a California guy, so I, I'm pretty confident when I say Stanford. I could be wrong, though. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's there's a presence for sure. Well, Rachel, we have to talk about Serena. It's gotten to be that time, and I know you're a big fan, one of your tennis heroes growing up. Yeah. But now we got to think about what the final, and I'm assuming final, because we're getting into the, the latter stages of her uh, career, but the final leg of her tennis professional journey is going to be she was a late scratch from the Australian Open, but there was a lot of rumblings. I know I had heard some stuff before the Vogue uh, magazine came out where she detailed that she had some post-pregnancy issues. She's going to play in the Fed Cup. She says she's going to play in both uh, March major events, Miami and Indian Wells. But what do you think, honestly, as somebody that obviously likes Serena Williams but also knows the grind of, of what it takes to be elite at that level yeah. What should we expect from Serena coming back? Is she going to be playing a lot of tournaments? Or are we going to see her have success early? What's your take on that? You know what uh, I think is really cool is that I remember when she said she pulled out of the Australian, she said she wasn't like 100% ready to play. Like she, she very well could have played the Australian. She may have won it. She may not have. But she said she just wasn't ready like 100%. She said she wasn't going to compete until – until she knew that she was, you know, ready to compete at that high level. And I thought that was real respectable that she didn't want to uh, risk coming in second or anything when she knew she actually should win and could win the entire tournament. I think that she's a competitor. I think that she still has a lot of fight left in her. She's not just one that, that would just say something like, oh, I am going to, you know, play Fed Cup and, and then she's not going to play Fed Cup. I believe that she will um, unless she hasn't gotten to where she wants to be yet then maybe maybe not but uh i i really think she's got a good like at least three to five you know years left ahead of her she's she's still like the very best um ever and hopefully she'll be back you know sooner than later yeah and the fed cup's interesting because 
I don't gauge too much about it one way or the other, other than the fact that I think she just wanted to play with her sister. I think yeah. having both of them together, knowing that, I mean, I don't know about Venus's future. <laughs> She's like going to be 39 right. this year, I think. Yeah. So there's not as much time left for these moments to play together on any stage. And you can do it in America without having to travel too far as well as a nice perk. But I just, I'm hesitant to assume anything with Serena. I think she's going to be very picky, even more picky than Roger with her schedule. It wouldn't surprise me if she didn't play the French just because of what that surface, the clay surface could mean for her body. I think Wimbledon, she's always going to play. And I think U.S. Open, if she's healthy, she's always going to want to play. But yeah, I think she's obviously, if she's in a tournament and she's healthy, She's got a chance to win any single tournament, major or small event that there is. But if there's one thing we both know about Serena, it's that she has a way of kind of playing herself back into shape. So I Mm. think she'll be, I don't expect the best results at these March tournaments. Let's put it that way, because I think she's going to just try to get the rust to clear off for bigger goals, which is obviously Grand Slams because she's got 23. She's one away from Margaret Court, and the only thing she hasn't done yet other than past Margaret Court, is when a Grand Slam is a mother. So when she yeah. knocks those off, I think that, that'll be it. I mean, she has literally nothing left to, left to prove. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, so um, maybe that'll take a little bit of, you know, weight off her shoulders. She's done everything that she needs to do. She's broken all the records. The only records left to break is her own. So, um, so yeah, I think you're right about that. But I think there's still a lot of tennis left for her to play. And I, and I do want to see, just with Federer, too, and Nadal, I want to see the younger generation say, no, like, this is our time. I want to see that competitiveness. Like, as great as Serena is, I would love nothing more than for her to be challenged in her yeah. return back. Yeah, uh, I agree with you. Someone step up and, you know, kind of take it. But it's no one as good as her quite yet. So Before we get to uh, the, the tail end of this interview, I do want to – McDonald went to UCLA. I was wrong. I knew, I knew yeah. it was in the Pac-12. Some, I was circling. Um, just said that on my live. They said I UCLA. I was circling. I was circling I was the Pac-12 drain. I should feel, feel a little better being out here uh, in Los Angeles too. Uh, but I did want to – before we get to that, I, I did want to get your take on Nadal because I know he's another one of your favorites. And he got back to number one in the world. He's still there temporarily. But the injury, the injury at – the Australian Open and, and not knowing what with his injury past and his age now at 31 going to be 32 this year is Nadal does he have another run left in him like anything we've seen I obviously think he's going to have a chance at the French every year but I it know. takes a lot to get back to number one and maintain that level I just worried when I saw that like that could be the final breakdown so to speak I think that um, if he has another run kind of left in him, it'll be French Open. Obviously, I think he'll uh, dominate a couple more of those. But, you know, he has a new injury, this psoas kind of injury, which is different for him. He always has the knees and what what wrist or shoulder or whatever it is. And this is kind of a new one, which had me a little bit worried that, you know what, he kind of is falling apart a little bit. I think that anyone on tour can come back from an injury or two. It's him. He's got the fight and the drive. and. Mm-hmm. He always, always, I mean, he loves it. He wants to play all the time. He wants to win every tournament. So it's it's not a matter of, well, does he even want to play again after all this? It's a matter of, can he get healthy enough to actually compete at this high level and win a few more big tournaments? And I say this next statement with as the most sincerest compliment. There's nobody that I've ever seen, man or woman, play tennis that's won more sets and matches when I've thought, man, they just weren't the better player out yeah. there. Like, yeah, yeah. Like, Dimitrov Aussie Open last year, early parts of that Chilich match this year. 
it just he looks like he's getting outplayed yet he still finds a way to win and that's that's my memory and how I'll remember Nadal you know and I, and I do because of that think that he has a couple years left because tennis like a lot of these professionals is his life that's all he wants to do Mm-hmm. I completely agree with you in that sense. He gives 110% every single point he plays, never takes a point off. So um, I think that, yeah, I, I do think he'll come back from this. And um, and I think we'll, we should expect to see him at the French and, and expect for him to win the French, even if Roger's healthy and playing well. You know, Rafa's going to want to win that one. That's oh, yeah. his turn. Try to win his 11th French Open, which is stupid in a lot of, <laughs> a lot of regards. But yeah. Rachel Stoneman, this is this has been great. You've been a great sport on everything. Appreciate the insight. But I want to make the last portion of this interview be a little bit about yourself because Thanks. I mean I've gotten to know you, and I know a lot of your you know your amazing thousands of followers on social media have gotten to know you. But I'd like to introduce you a little bit to my audience as well, if that's all right, and ask you some some questions, some quick. Uh, we'll call them like some quick, hard hitting questions, uh, but not too hard hitting. That's not it's <laughs> not really my style. We'll start with something light about your past as a as a tennis player. What was what would you say your proudest moment was on the court? Uh, proudest moment on the court. I would say that that was probably the biggest win in my career. My sophomore year of college, when uh, I was my team Mizzou, we were playing Georgia, and uh, I was playing the twenty two ranked player in the nation, and uh, I just played. Uh, I followed us specific game plan, followed it to a T, never stopped believing in myself that match, and I ended up winning pretty soundly, and that was kind of like a moment in my career where I was just like, you know what, like all this hard work, all the like sweat and hours I put in on the court paid off, um, I remember getting like emotional after the match, because like that was just a, a moment in my life when uh, everything had come together, and, and uh, it just worked or whatever, so that was probably one of the most moments in my career and then um and then yeah a, a lot of team matches there were a couple of team matches where uh, i was very proud we fought through a very a couple of tough ones and so you know okay that's a good that's a, definitely a good first answer uh, <laughs> on that flip side of that though do you have a particular loss that you remember being hard to get over and how eventually yeah. did you get over no i still haven't got i don't get over <laughs> any losses any wow okay <laughs> No, it's I'm a good kidding, thing but... you're good at tennis then. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I was playing, I would say the hardest one I ever had to really get over was um, I was playing Texas A&M and the girl was actually ranked eight in the nation and I had two match points mm. and uh, I couldn't convert them. And I remember it was like a long match, like a three, three hour plus match. I remember at the end of the match uh, when I couldn't, when I lost in like a tiebreaker, I remember falling to my knees because I was so sad. Like I remember just kind of just being real upset about it, and um, and that was one that I to this day, like I was just thinking about it the other day. I was like, Damn, I still <laughs> didn't convert this point. But nah, it's it's all good, and I, I think that that was kind of a stubbing stone in my career as well. Like um, might may not have won the match, but it, it definitely taught me a lot about myself and about my own personal tennis game. So. Well, we were off to a good start. Sorry for bringing up bad memories. Um, okay. Part of it. <laughs> uh, the next question is, if you could, I guess, now or, or back to your competitive playing days, have one shot on tour from man or woman, what would it be? Whose who's, who's professional shot would you want? A serve, a backhand? Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. Um, shoot. I'm 
see if I could put like a player together based on different shots. I gotta say, I love Serena serve. I always have. Like I'll never forget. Uh, answer, yeah, no, that's that's uh, that's a popular <laughs> answer. Yeah, I'll never forget watching her. Um, it was, I think it was like the U.S. Open a few years ago, and it was like it was one of those two plus hour matches. It was like very very hot. I remember it was like a long one for her. It was a third set, and she just cranked out like this one thirty five mile per hour serve, like ace at like the hardest point part of the match. I just remember being like, oh my god, this is why she's the best. So I just remember that about it too. I think that's probably one of the best shots on tour by far. Yeah, that's. I mean, anybody would want that shot, man or woman. Serena's serve just remarkable. What were yeah. some of the rituals you had before playing competitive okay. tennis? And kind of a follow up to that, what did you listen to music wise? If you did, listen okay, to music? yeah, because that's a big um, ritual of mine was listening to music a lot. If you know me, you know I love a lot of music. So I'm trying to think, and someone just asked me this the other day. I had a whole match playlist. And you know what's funny is that before that match I won against Georgia, I listened to this song by Young Jeezy. And I remember, like, um, after I won that match, I had to listen to it before every match, like, for the rest of my career. Like, I wow. listened to this song before every match. And, no, I, I, I guess growing up in St. Louis, and um, I listened to, like, um, a lot of rap music before matches, so uh, it was like some Young Jeezy, some Meek Mill, um, just like a yeah, a lot of stuff that'll get you kind of just in your zone and, and uh, focused and ready to play. As far as other rituals, um, I would always kind of eat the same foods before matches, like same dinner. It was always some kind of pasta with red sauce. Same thing for breakfast, some fruit. Um, like a bagel with peanut butter on it, and then um, like uh, I would have to kind of jump rope say some prayers before the match and then yeah just get ready to go talk to the team and then get out there and ready to go so so kind of a follow-up to that how upset are you that migos wasn't out back then oh my God. you know what they were like oh, well, not, yeah not out like officially on the <laughs> yeah. game team. Yeah. you know what it's funny because like i hear songs on the radio i'm like i would put that in my pre-match playlist like this song would mm -hmm. go in it i've done that like a few times that uh, if i was still playing i'd have a pretty lit pre-match playlist that's for sure um, and the last question i have for you rachel um what was the best advice that you ever received whether it be before a match or before the start of a season or just at any point in your tennis career yeah you know i've i've uh, been lucky enough to have received a lot of good advice from different mentors and people but um one that always 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 just stood out with me was and it was kevin durant's mantra like hard work beats talent talent doesn't work hard or whatever but that always kind of uh stuck with me because when i was born i wasn't born i wouldn't say i was born super athletic um or super like talented but i worked very 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 hard and i remember putting in a lot of like extra time off court extra time in the gym and all that kind of stuff just so that i could get to the level that i wanted to be so um just kind of knowing that you put in that hard work gave me that kind of extra confidence on court and uh yeah so that was one of the one of the things that i kind of was told that always kind of helped me with my career so really have to look into getting this sponsor now <laughs> after some of these answers it's been it's been good i do have one last question though are okay. you a trash talker out there you don't have to say uh, what you said if you if you were, but <laughs> we are a family friendly show. But uh, I know you know what I wasn't. Um, I didn't say anything unless like uh, I felt like it was really something like a situation or something that I felt like I really needed to say something. So uh, no, I wouldn't say I was a trash talker. But like if some if there was like a situation, I would definitely speak up. So. Okay, no, I like it. I'm not. 
I'm polite, I'm respectful, but I'm not going to back down. That's right. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's basically that's it. it. Okay. Well, Rachel, this was uh, it was good to get to know you. Thanks for answering those questions. Uh, lastly, I want to talk about some of the stuff you've been doing, and at the top of it, you've been blogging recently. You've been writing a lot. It's been fun to kind of watch your growth there. What prompted you to take a active uh, approach into writing more? Yeah, you know what? I always, always, always like kind of like writing things and expressing myself because sometimes I feel like I used to struggle with kind of saying what I wanted to say. So writing things down was always kind of an easier way and an outlet for me to say what I wanted to say. And um, and I feel like uh, as far as topics, I have a little bit different kind of views on things and different kind of topics that I feel like interest different people and just based on feedback I get. It's been pretty cool to see that people take an interest in some of the things that I'm interested in and some of the things I like writing about. Yeah, it's been fun for me to kind of express myself um, in kind of a, I don't really like saying I have a blog, but in blog format. So, um, yeah, it's been kind of cool like that. So. And we can find it at Off the Record. Is that the name of the website where you're writing oh. for? Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, I have my own website. It's 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 rachelstolman.com. And uh, my videographer, Oscar, he also has this website um, off the record, usa.com. And, uh, and my articles are published on that as well. So that's, yeah, that's been pretty cool. You guys have been pumping out some great content. Try, really try not to work Oscar too hard. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. He's so, he's so great. He's such a trooper. He's great at what he does. And yeah, he's, he's actually grown a lot as well. And and improved a lot as well and he's just a great partner I'm very thankful for him and what other things uh, can we expect from you and are going on for you in this uh, upcoming year yeah it's a lot of um, it's a lot of cool things coming up um, some things undisclosed at the moment um, but all I can say is just kind of stay tuned and rock with me and, and I'll and I'll kind of crank them out soon enough you'll see what I'm kind of up to so I like it just a subtle tease you don't want to you don't want to right. reveal it all in one push. I see. I, and you're also applauding to come back on. That's very savvy of you, uh, not revealing everything right now. Right. <laughs> uh, Rachel Stoneman, this was a pleasure. Um, yeah, so I guess once I'm, I'm wondering, is the trip going to be in the cards for Indian Wells? Is that something that's going to be arranged? Oh, you know, I really want to. It's kind of in the mix. I've always, always wanted to go to it. And like every year, I'm like, I'm going to go this year. Uh, and it, it never happens, but it's the greatest. Uh, it's been voted like the best tournament, even over Grand Slams. And and, I, and from what I hear, it's just amazing. Larry Ellison puts on a pretty fabulous uh, tournament. So hopefully this year I will go. And, and uh, are you going? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's my one chance to really get to go and see a lot of tennis. This will be my third year going. And I just, the easiest sales pitch I can give you is the venue is amazing. The weather is great. And just the access to all the tennis is phenomenal. Right. You can yeah. walk court to court and see, especially early. Definitely want to go early in the tournament when you could see a top 10 player playing on court like nine. You know, yeah. If you like doubles, if you women in the practice courts are just, you're right there. I mean, last year, last year there was standing room only for a Federer practice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. You know what? I heard that more than once, so hopefully I can get over there. Yeah, you'll get to see a lot if you can come. But, Rachel, this was a pleasure. Good luck again with everything. Uh, I don't know how much luck you actually need, but thanks again for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Oh, of course. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure chatting with Rachel Stillman. If you're in the St. Louis area and you're 
trying to improve as a tennis player or just improve your quality of life, definitely hit her up, follow what she's doing. And yeah, I'm serious about that. I, she definitely needs to make it out to Indian Wells and everybody, if they get a chance to, please, it's a great time for tennis. But always a pleasure talking with her. And uh, yeah, we'll just see what the future holds in the tennis world as well for Rachel Stillman. All right, next up, it is Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch Effect. Time to talk hockey. Again, it's been a month since we chatted on this show. A lot's changed in that time. We're going to break down everything in the playoff picture. Talk about his Kings, who's making their pushes. If the All-Star game in the three-on-three format is still a good thing, it needs to be changed. And we got to pay our respects to Yarmir Yager, a legend who's probably done playing in the NHL, still going to be playing hockey, but we talk about what he meant to this league and this generation of fans. Derek Roberts from Fox Sports Radio on the Money Mitch Effect. All right, now on the Money Mitch Effect, back again in front of the program to talk hockey. Eric Roberts, Fox Sports Radio. Eric, thanks for joining the show. It's the second half of the season. Yeah, definitely, man. I'm pumped. It's uh, it's this good time of year for sports. You know, you got we're Super Bowl week. Uh, basketball is actually starting to mean a little bit. Um, baseball's right around the corner, and you got hockey. You know, it seems like we're taking this turnaround to to get to this home stretch and tread deadline approaching and playoffs would feel like they're right around the corner well I wouldn't go as far as to say basketball starting to mean something but I'm with you on everything else I'm, I'm with you on all, yeah, on yeah. all the other things yeah I feel like you know once once you pass the Christmas couple games it's that uh, you start paying attention you you won't pay attention as much but you do pay attention to like those benchmark games when the Celtics and the Warriors play each other mm-hmm. when you know just to try to get the teams who are jockeying for position out of the way and get a hierarchy established <laughs> Yeah, it's um, and my condolences too. I know you're a Pelicans fan. It's a tough time with uh, Boogie's injury. Just n- something nobody wanted to see. I can, I think oh, I feel safe it's saying rough. that. And he he, uh, and he hurt he hurt himself on a play to pretty much win the game for the team. And, um, and like I just mentioned, the benchmark games. Like I, I was I watched them play the Celtics. What was it three or four days before? Beat the Celtics. They go toe to toe with the Rockets, and you think, okay, this is a good team. Make some noise in the playoffs. And that goes, and that happens. Days later, there's rumors about AD being moved in the summer. Man, it's just what are we doing? It's awful. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll switch to hockey just to keep the vibes more positive. Um, we just completed the All Star game in the NHL down in Tampa Bay, and Eric, it's interesting. Now we have a couple years of the format of the three on three format. It's lost its new car smell, and I don't say that as a bad or a good thing. Uh, but I want to get your take on it. After a few years of it not being a new thing, what do you think of the All-Star Game format? Did you like the, the product on the ice? Are you ready for something different, maybe a tweak? What do you think of the All-Star Game? Yeah, I think uh, with All-Star Game, especially with this one, I, with the NHL, you know, you, I think there should be some minor tweaks to it. I think it definitely got to keep the, the three-on-three. Um, but there's got to be something to keep people interested. I mean, it's it's kind of like... It, like you said, the new car smell. I mean, you can kind of see the tides moving on people switching from being pro pro the three on three tournament to con. So the first year it came out, oh, this is amazing, this is amazing, and people are slowly getting tired of it. I mean, the difference between it being so exciting. I mean, it's still it's still fun to watch. A lot of open ice, but it's different from during the year during the year when you know it's overtime, short period. When you got these long ten minute half, twenty minute games, it's like okay, there's a lot of just you know looping around. 
So there should be little tweaks, whether that's like, you know, maybe making it a half, half ice kind of game or, you know, the, going the width of the ice. Something's got to go to get people reinterested and um, really kill the downtime. There's a lot of quiet air when, when it's just three on three, a lot of really no noise in the background, a lot of just kind of quiet waiting for something to happen. Yeah, no, I agree with that, and I do want to give a shout-out to the Pacific Division, which has been beastly, winning winning again now the second time that that's happened in three years. Um, I'm Maybe maybe one of the suggestions is I'd like to see the draft come back. I thought that was a good gimmick, and I think it would also get rid of the issue of maybe there's too many talented players in, in certain divisions over other divisions. You could just take the best players and turn it into a draft again. Yeah, definitely, and that would bring up some interesting scenarios. Do you know? Does somebody draft a goalie first, or does somebody go all forwards and you, could, you know kind of throw the defense by the wayside and try to go run and gun, or does somebody go all defense and play lockdown? Um, yeah, that would definitely be interesting. It'd be interesting to see how they kind of work the who plays who kind of thing. But uh, definitely, they need to inject some kind of you know a tweak in to get people reinterested. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. I, I just, I'm a fan of, of hockey at a high level. Uh, if anybody won the All Star weekend, other than the obviously the Pacific Division, Brock Boser. I mean, that kid, he had quite a payday, didn't he? Oh yeah, I, I saw the uh, the rundown of all the extra incentives that he won for you know winning the 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 accuracy for being invited, being on the winning team. He won a car. It's just, uh, he, yeah, he had a quite the payday. Going, he's probably going to go home and probably catch a couple bills on the next road trip. For, from the veterans on his team. Yeah, just a kid at only 20 years old. It's remarkable to see. Well, Eric, I'm going to switch to the regular season talk. Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch effect. And, you know, most teams are anywhere between 47 and 50, 51 games played. Uh, so we're starting to get that home stretch feel. We, we still got a lot of hockey left, but the regular season games are dwindling. And one of my favorite tr- trends in hockey. I'm going to look at the Eastern Conference right now, is that you have basically an entire division head and shoulders above another entire division. The Metropolitan Division has basic, has the two wildcard teams and the next three teams in line after that. So I think it's safe to say, Eric, that the easiest prediction is the Atlantic is pretty much done. We could pretty much lock Tampa, Boston, and Toronto right into the playoffs. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, like you said, the head and shoulders above um, the They've got the inside tracks. In order for Toronto to fall off, it's going to have to be a major collapse. I mean, Detroit's sitting at two games under 500. Uh, it's going to have to take a major collapse from Toronto, and Detroit's going to have to find their legs real quick for this to flip around on it. But, yeah, the, the Atlantic looks very set. And whether or not Boston and Toronto makes it close enough at, towards the end of the season to give Tampa a run for the number one seed in the division and maybe even in the conference, uh, I don't know if that's going to happen either. <laughs> So the Bruins are, yeah, I mean, in these three teams, Tampa Bay has been the best team in hockey with the Vegas Golden Knights for most of this year. The Bruins in Toronto are also very, very good, um, as good as any other team in the Metropolitan Division, but there's a huge drop-off of, uh, of double-digit points for the next teams. The Bruins are down right now as we record this to the Ducks 2 nothing, and I say that because they have an 18-game point streak. Eric, they've been the hottest team in hockey uh, by a significant margin, 8-0-2 in their last 10. How have they been able to flip it? Because we had our doubts, both of us, about this team before the season started. Would they be able to reload? But this is a team that's playing well in all three facets of the game. How do you think they've done it and flipped the switch? Uh, I don't know. You know, it's it's funny. The It's it's kind of much like they're, they're getting play from the players that they need to get the start from. I mean, they're riding Brad Marchand. Uh, he's 
killing it right now. 21 goals, 29 assists, 50 points. And he's really kind of, you know, found his game. And for him, he's the scrappy kind of guy. And I think a lot of it, a lot of the team's momentum and mojo for if you, for a word, um, runs through him. If he's clicking, he's, he's feisty. He gets, he gets them moving. He gets the energy pump in. And a lot of, I think their success derives around how well Brad Marchand is playing, whether even if it's not points wise, he's the energy for that team. And it's, I think it rides on his shoulders. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned Marshawn because it does ride on his, on his shoulders, positively and negatively. I think the the suspension, the the elbow that was just unnecessary, that got I think it was in, against New Jersey that got him suspended. It's a little bit of the bad Marshawn that we kind of thought he was past this. I could I could see that being a problem when they get to meaningful hockey in the playoffs. I don't know if it's going to be a huge problem, but this is still a guy with a track record for kind of losing his cool in big moments. Yeah, and yeah, like you said, he play he, he he's a scrappy player. He plays on he rides the line on, you know, what's legal and what's not legal. And you know, it's it's going to come down to, you know, if he can teeter that line and not cost his team with man games lost because, you know, he does yeah, he has a record. He's been suspended games this year, so anything where he, you know, he tuck lets the elbow fly, it's not tucked into his body or even anything questionable, the uh the NHL could, you know, use him to make an example of him and at this time of year, the, the the Bruins can't afford to have you know their their stud watching from the press box. Oh, they certainly can't. And again, though, the Bruins, Tuukka Rask. I mean, they have the fewest goals allowed all season. Uh, it's just been a remarkable season from a guy that's still perennially overlooked. Uh, Eric, as I look at now the Metropolitan Division, which we said was stacked, Washington has a six point lead over Columbus and Pittsburgh. And then it's New Jersey and Philadelphia nipping on their, their heels, a point away from that. The Rangers, Islanders, a point away from that. And then Carolina at 52 points, all within five points of second place in that division. How do you think this is going to shake out? I'm looking at each team, I guess, down from Pittsburgh. They all have their strengths, but they also certainly have their weaknesses. Yeah, I, it's definitely, uh, that's, it's gonna, that's what it's going to come down to is whether or not, you know, who's going to fault because, Every team has their guys, and their guys are clicking, and it's going to come down to the likes of, you know, an, a person hit uh, a player hit in a slump, or maybe Ovechkin, you know, going on a goal slump, which sounds outlandish, but I mean, if he stops playing as well as he is, he leaves the goal NHL with 30 goals. If he goes on a downswing, that might have a ripple effect. Ripple effect if you know a, a goalie hits a rut somewhere on one of these three, you know, leading teams, it's going to have ripple effects. So it's pretty much. Uh, going to be, I feel like, going to come down to who plays mistake-free hockey and who makes the least mistakes and, you know, doesn't give a person chasing them a chance at, you know, two points on an off night or something like that. Yeah, I actually think that Pittsburgh and Washington are probably going to battle for the division. I know Pittsburgh's trying for the three-peat, but they're playing a lot better. Columbus is right in that mix as well. Uh, I think New Jersey's there to stay in that wild card. I think they're a very good team. Um, Oddly enough, goals against has been a bit of an issue, but they can score this year. I think they're good. Philly, the Rangers, and the Islanders, I think it's a crapshoot. Even Carolina, any one of those teams can get hot and make a run. Eric, the Islanders, though, what a just curious team to watch because they are, as it stands right now, next to Tampa Bay, they score the most goals in the league at 3.38 a game, but they also give up a ridiculous 3.58 a game, the most by a mile in the National Hockey League. So it's exciting to watch them play, if anything else. 
Yeah, and they're always one of those teams that you feel each and every year you're not really sure what you're getting from them because you have you see instances where it's like this could be a team you know to maybe to maybe make a playoff push and then they go on a slump or they just make they drop questionable games. So it's always tough to just see you know what exactly are we going to get from them on a nightly basis. Right, I agree with that. I just you you see something with that team that they score in big moments. John Tavares is as clutch as any player in this league, probably with the exception of a guy like Crosby or, or Taves, Kopitar, I guess, the big three there. But he's a big-time player. He makes things happen. Anders Lee, I gave a shout-out to uh, Wild Bill Carlson of the uh, Vegas Gold Knights last time we recorded the show about having a great year, fourth in the league in scoring. Right up there with him is Anders Lee of the Islanders, another guy that most casual NHL fans wouldn't know about, but he's been a goal-scoring force as well this season. I, I just think this team's backline problems, if Halak can be the answer, if they're, if they're going to have an answer on that backline, that's going to be what costs them in the playoff push. I just don't know if they can rely on their defense. But in any one game, I feel like they have a chance to beat anybody with that offense. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and then... It's if they can sneak into a playoff spot, like that's going to be could be their Achilles heel. But like you said, they have big time players like Javon, Don Tavares who can come through with a goal when they need it. But it's one of those things where with a team that plays with fire like that, you, you know, it's going to it feels like it's going to hit midnight sooner than later for than some of the other teams. Well, let's look at the Western Conference now. Money, Mitch, effect, Eric Roberts. Actually, before we do that, I do have a question for you. Who do you think the bigger disappointment has been? this season Edmonton or Ottawa it's tough oh man that's tough I think I mean but I think we got to go with Edmonton I mean Edmonton was on such an upswing I feel like the projection of them makes it more of an upset because we ever I mean we were talking Stanley Cup with me and you when we Mm -hmm. talked before the year and I said a lot of people were so I feel like the fact that we had them skyrocketing out of last season at such a high rate um, makes them a larger disappointment than the Senators. But the Senators, I mean, a, a regular among, like, you know, the deep playoff runs. And the, the biggest disappointment for me is that, you know, the, the trade, the, the rumors circulating around Carlson all season long, it's like it's, it, the wheels fall off, they fall off. Yeah, Ottawa, I would say probably Ottawa here. You made some good points about Edmonton, but I guess – Part of it is Ottawa got a little further last year, making the conference final overtime, of, you know, double overtime of a game seven. But they also might lose the team. I mean, Ottawa is having an issue with the city right now. And as much as we, we had high hopes for Edmonton, I was as guilty as anyone, still just 10 points back of that wild card, 10 or 11 points. So not completely dead, but I, I just don't, I just don't know what's going on there. Both teams in just a sad state up north. Um, it's very infuriating. But one team that's probably the best surprise, switching from a negative to a positive, of any team in the National Hockey League this year, I think the brightest story right now, Eric, would have to be the Colorado Avalanche, what they've been able to do, especially since trading away Matt Duchesne. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You see, you, you see these, uh, these advanced stat graphs that are, get circulated all, every night on Twitter, and you... You see, like when when he was traded, and it's it's almost it's the complete opposite of what you think it would happen. Have the result, you know, it's the uptick on, uh, you know, puck possession, points, all this all this positive stuff. And you know, with his absence, you you see Nathan McKinnon just kind of totally take the weight of the team on his shoulders. And you know, people are are 
putting his name in their MVP talks, and it's really uh, a 180 from what we expected of him coming to the season. Yeah, I, you know, people forgot how good McKinnon was, and I think we have this same issue when evaluating a player like Jack Eichel because he's an unbelievable young talent as well, but they're just overshadowed by the McDavid's and the Matthews and even the Linees. And McKinnon tore it up his rookie year as an 18-year-old. He's been in the league, what, four or five years already, and he's still under 24. Um, so I think we just forgot how good he was. I don't want to come off as saying that Duchesne might have been a locker room issue or a cancer in the locker room, but he clearly wanted to get out. He wanted to be on a different team. And you and I both know when that, fi- when that guy finally leaves, whoever that guy is, the rest of the team's going to respond better. Okay, everybody in this locker room is going to play because they want to be here. I mean, you're also a Buffalo Bills fan, so you know when guys get traded away that don't want to be there, the team can play better as a result, even if the talent isn't quite the same. Yeah, you know, it's it's almost, it's like a jolt, it's a catalyst, you know. There's change, we're not afraid to make change, you know, to go out and get, to make moves in order to, you know, obviously this isn't working, we're going to go and try to figure figure out what is working. And it's worked, I mean, I think they had about I think they had some about a ten game win streak somewhere in the middle like end of December end of January or middle January. Um, it's going to be interesting because they have a, a big chunk of road games I think coming up, and it'll be interesting to see if Joe Sackett you know turns out the, what he wants to do at the deadline you know if, whether or not he wants to bring in a big piece or exactly what he sees the future of his of the team. Yeah, they still have a lot of work to do because just. Just being in that wild card spot clinches nothing. There's a lot of hungry teams, especially in their own division. Especially in that, in that, <laughs> in, yeah, in that division, it's going to be a shootout. Well, I feel like if we look at the Pacific, though, for a second, Eric, I still feel like I'm one of those crazy people on the street trying to convince everybody that I don't fully believe in Vegas, but they keep proving me wrong because it's it's gotten to just comical levels of efficiency with how good they've been. Is I know it's we're forty eight games in, but are are you convinced fully that they're here to stay? I I think so, man. Um, we talked about it. We talked about it last time, and after like I want to say the next two weeks, they went out and beat like the Capitals, the Lightning, and it's just, they beat some of the big heavyweights yeah. in the NHL. And it's you know it's we everybody's focusing on the Vegas flu and stuff, and you know. But their their road record has kind of evened out. They're thirteen nine and two on the road, which you know they they were under five hundred to the beginning of the year, but they've pulled back ahead of five hundred. Um, they're fast. They got good goaltending with Flurry being back. You know they they they're the team that survived the the injury bug early on. They were what five six goalies deep. Mm-hmm. They got their anchor back now in Flurry. They have goal or uh, defensemen playing great. They have guys that can score goals. They're a fast team, a good puck moving team, a good puck pressuring team. And they're when I was watching them play the Kings, I was just these guys are so fast and they got they, they run a system that everybody buys into. They're they're on the puck and they look real good when they're clicking. Yeah, I, I'm let me rephrase it. I think they're definitely here to stay in the regular season. I still am gonna have my doubts until I see them in a seven game series. But the speed thing it is a difference maker. When they played not only the Kings, but the Sharks and the Ducks, they have that extra gear. And with Flurry's playing well in net, they are hard to beat. Not just a good home team. I mean, they're an unbelievable home team. But they have a winning record on the road, too. Um, yeah, I mean, they've built themselves a cushion in that Pacific to where they don't have to win every game down the stretch. I think that's very valuable for a young team that hasn't been there. I got to say, Eric, though, as we continue talking to Eric Roberts on the Money Mitch effect, I'm worried about the Kings, not just because of their last 10 
three and seven in their last ten. But I just don't see that level of skill. I, it almost looks like they were a team overachieving. The Jeff Carter situation isn't making things better. I'm, I'm very pessimistic to say the least. Yeah, the, it's it's interesting because you know I I, see, I feel like I'm right there with you because we see these familiar faces that have been like on the team when you won you won two two cups in three years you were there in the in the Western Conference Final in between and but then these are the same faces that missed the playoffs two of three years and you see it's like well we've been so good we've won we've been successful but these guys are still here why aren't we doing the same thing and Obviously, yes, the Jeff Carter situation, losing him, what, six games in the season, mm-hmm. um, stunted their growth or their, you know, their early momentum. But they actually won. They were doing pretty well when early with, when he was out, but they've just hit a wall here recently. I mean, they lost, I think it was a six in a row uh, in, yeah. in December, January. Yeah. So it's just you, you want to you say, like, they're going to find it. They're going to come around the corner just because the, that core nucleus is there of what was so successful for a good, good amount of time. But then at the same time, like you said, it just doesn't look like they have what needs to be displayed on a night-in and night-out basis to go and win every game. Yeah, I, I think part of it was players like a Dustin Brown who had an unbelievable resurgence to start the year maybe playing above their overall level of skill. And maybe water does find its level to steal a metaphor uh, eventually in an 82-game season. Uh, I, I just... I was wondering, we we look at this Kings team offensively as not being as deep as some of the teams that they're battling, and I think goal scoring is going to be an an issue. I wouldn't say a a cause of concern, but definitely something to monitor as they go from, they're a point out of the Pacific, but they're also on the outside looking in, tied exactly number of points with Colorado and trending the wrong way. Um, That metro, or that, excuse me, that central division that we alluded to earlier, going to be very competitive down the stretch because while I'm a firm believer in what Winnipeg can do, I got to say Nashville's coming, Eric. They are, they are going to be pushing for top spot in that division. Yeah, they, they're clicking. Um, they're one of the teams that I feel like you know they, they kind of grow. They build momentum. They're a momentum team that really works on what they built in the last game. So once they get their momentum going and the, the dominoes start flowing, you get players like P.K. Subban locking in on his game or Pekka Rene locking in in the crease, and it's going to get very hard to beat these teams because, you know, they like the, the one, two-goal games, and if they're only giving up one goal a game, it's going to be tough to beat them on a nightly basis. You know, Benino was out for a long time, big offseason acquisition. He's back. Pekka Rene is looking good again. And, yeah, I just think they have a proven system that works, and they have skill at every position. So they're going to be tough. But unlike the Eastern Conference, Eric, I could actually see in the West – a lot of jostling for position. A lot of teams on the outside making runs at playoff spots. Who are some of the teams that you see, maybe not in the playoff uh, position right now, that could be making some runs? Because I hate to say it, but I think another team from California might be making their push as well. Yeah, the um, the Ducks, man. They're I, I feel I want I, I want I'll circle back to the Kings, but the Ducks they're they're getting healthy. That was a big thing early with them, man. They they mm-hmm. you know they had Miss Getzloff for a period of time. Um, they're just they're getting healthy and they're clicking. There's uh, where are they? They're six three and one in the last ten. They that's the big thing with them. If they can stay healthy, Ricardo Kell's great, and I think they're finally kind of reworking their situation. I mean, like they're realizing okay, there's we got these young guys. It's time to you know give them a bigger role. I guess off and Corey Perry have been shuffled around the lineup. 
I think the the Ducks they could be making a, a push here late in the se- late in the season to get to kind of make up for their early season uh, downfalls. Yeah, they really just weren't scoring enough goals early. You know, and they're still struggling in that in that mark. You know, averaging only two point seven six a game, but it's on the uptick. They're getting healthy, and they still just have a lot of young youth. I mean, Ricard Raquel has had a breakout season to say the least. I think they're a team to look at, and I also think Minnesota. I think we're we're not given the Wild enough credit for for going on a hot streak and building a deep uh, roster as well. I kind of I, I think we're going to see the end of a, a little bit of an era here with Chicago. I know it's going to make a lot of other teams happy, but I know not to count them out. They're like Jason in the in the in those thirteenth uh, movies, but I just I don't see it this year with that Blackhawk squad. Yeah, I was actually reading up on something about about you know the the if they were to not make the playoffs this year, it's the, they have the second longest uh, running active streak outside of the the. Penguins who have been in, in the playoffs every year since 07. They, the Blackhawks have been in every year since 08. And it'll be interesting because, you know, it's if they don't make the the playoffs, if they're not in the position, it's like, what are they doing at the deadline? You know, and then it's their only, it, it, they're shot they're shot in the foot right now with Corey Crawford being out, out of the injury, out of lineup with the injury. Um, it's, yeah, it would definitely be weird to see that, you know, those first playoff brackets come out and not see, not be trying to, figure out how Patrick Kane or Jonathan Taves will be factoring into the uh, the postseason madness. Yeah, the Crawford injury, it's terrible. It's a, a vertigo situation where it's unknown. It's kind of unclear. He could be back in a week or two. He could be out for the rest of the season. So they're a team that's dealt with a lot of issues, uh, but they still got some great talent. So until they're out, I'm only four points back, but until they're officially eliminated, we're never going to be sure. Well, Eric Roberts, Money Mitch Effect, this was great. Before I let you go, though, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up somebody in particular because I think we also did see history this past week. The end of another era, Yarmir Yager, no longer in the NHL. This is a guy that I know both of us have been watching play hockey since we were pretty much alive. What does his legacy mean to your NHL fandom and just to the game of hockey itself? Man, I... um. I went down the Yarmer Yager rabbit rabbit hole a little bit when, you know, he did clear waivers and I was talking to a couple friends at work that I don't follow hockey too much. And I just started off by telling him, I was like, June 16th, 1990. And they're like, what's that? I'm like, wow. birthday. I'm like, no, that's the day Yager was drafted into the <laughs> NHL a full year and a half before I was even born. Oh man. And then I just, you know, I rattled off. He's like, he's been, He's played against Gretzky. He's played with the likes of Mario Lemieux. He's he's, I don't know, it's, ugh, it's insane. He's gone to other leagues and beat beat up and won in every other league. He's played in internationally, na- National Hockey League. And the kids that are playing against him now weren't even born when he was in the year in the in the game for five years already. And it's just it's the end of an era. And you know when he was placed on waivers, I was at the point where it's like, you know what, Kings, just grab him, just grab him, so yeah. I could just just take him, please. Don't don't send, don't write him off just yet. Yeah, he's an original. He's an OG, uh, the last of an era. I mean, that that goes without saying. He was somebody that got a lot of people our generation, uh, in our generation, to buy into hockey because he had the style, he had the mullet, he had the flair. But the guy could really play. And I'm in the camp that I know Gretzky's point record will never be broken, Eric. And and maybe Ovechkin gets his goal record if he keeps it going. But I think Yager would have if he wouldn't have gone to the KHL for all those years i mean i think it's just goes yeah. without saying yeah i've uh yeah and that's the big thing it's like he did he left for a cool minute and he still 
tore it up uh, in the record book. And even he said um, when he acknowledged the fact when he did, you know, get to second place behind Gretzky, he's like, oh, I, but I see myself as first because nobody's ever going to get that that <laughs> point total. But it's like, yeah. so yeah, what he did on the, on the ice and even till this, even till, you know, last season, he was still a, a, a force on the ice. You know, he, he might not have been as, as successful this year, but he was a force on his on the ice into his his the end of his career, and he was doing it with and against some of the youngest kids and the most talented kids in the game. And uh, it's gonna be it's gonna be weird to see. You know, I, I'm gonna miss the traveling yogers the most. I think <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna miss the uh, the the random features. And because you know, every year, every season, randomly there'll be a couple that comes up. There they added a yogger with a new jersey for some mm-hmm. reason, but. It's going to be weird to see the the hockey world without Yarmer, that's for sure. It is. It's a guy that gave everything he had to the game of hockey, um, trained so hard just to keep his body in shape to be able to play this long. It's a credit to his work ethic. My favorite Yager story is always going to be, I think it was last year, supposed to be at an all-star, uh, supposed to be a 25th reunion of his Penguins team uh, that won the Stanley Cup, and he couldn't go because he was playing that night. <laughs> yeah insane yeah it's, it's insane incredible uh but what a guy what I a like, legend uh, when when you bring up like that they know the hot topic right now is the whole tom brady playing at 40 you know he's the best that there is at 40 yammer yager playing hockey till this late of his career like somebody's looking to him i know because sure it's... tom brady's you know tom brady's the best he's still the best at his position and everything but you know he he he, he steps back and throws the ball yammer yager's playing hockey for this long this guy's an athletic freak. Yeah, he's not. Brady's not getting slashed on the wrist repeatedly uh, for sixty minutes. That goes without. No, saying. yeah. When you have a little, you have twenty-year-olds coming at you because they want to be the one to take out Yager. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little different. It's a little different, that's for sure. All right, Eric Roberts, this was great. Thanks again for coming on. We'll have to reconvene in a month or so as we get closer to the trade deadline. But thanks for coming on the Money Mitch Effect. Always fun talking puck with you. Yeah, man, it'll be a blast. Next time we'll be talking playoffs, dude. And that's it for today's show. Thanks again to both guests, Rachel Stillman and Eric Roberts, for appearing. Thanks to Brian Nelson for supplying the logo and Tim Adams for supplying the beats. All Money Mitch Effect episodes can be found on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. Just search Money Mitch Effect. I'm on Twitter at MoneyMitchM21. And one last note, there will be another show this week. There's a lot we didn't talk about today. Uh, part of it was a, a little shocking to say the least. Kurt Cousins is going to hit free agency because Alex Smith just got traded to the Redskins and Blake Griffin traded to the Pistons from the Clippers. So trades in the NBA and the NFL. We have a big Super Bowl show planned for the end of this week where we're going to discuss a lot of different things, including the Alex Smith trade. We may even touch on some basketball as well. So if you're expecting to hear that, my apologies. We will get to that this week, I promise. But you know, breaking news breaks everywhere. We will, we will, you know, study it in detail. There's a lot to discuss in the NBA and the NFL. And we'll get to that as well as preview the Super Bowl, Patriots and Eagles. I'm Mitch Michaels. This was the Money Mitch Effect. Thanks for listening. If you like it, share the show, subscribe, leave a review. Until next time, please, please, please keep enjoying sports.